and welcome to Social Design Insights, the show that brings you the leading voices of the social design movement from the fields of architecture, engineering, planning, art, and whomever else we can find that's out there trying to make the world a better place. I'm your host, Eric Kessel. We've got a great show for you today as we continue on in our attempt to reframe the refugee crisis and learn to think about it differently. We're joined today by Mariam Chazal Noel of the International Organization for Migration. IOM came up in last week's episode as we talked to Dr. Nita Hall about the evolving mandates of some of these orgs. IOM is unique in that it's the only organization that's specifically focused on migration and migrants. Similar to some of those other agencies, it's been dealing with a bit of mandate creep. It was created in 1951, long before climate change was even understood as a thing. And now we're facing the very real prospect of millions of people being driven from their homes, and even from their homelands as the climate evolves. How is IOM dealing with that at a global scale? Well, Mariam is here to clue us in. Mariam is the associate expert in the Migration, Environment, and Climate Change program at IOM. There, she coordinates IOM's global inputs to the UN processes for climate change, including the annual UN Climate Change Conference. She's basically the one who tries to make sure that migration is being taken seriously as an issue in every conversation we have about climate change. She's also the author of Law Review, Environmental Migration, Human Rights, and Legal Issues, as well as Organizational Perspectives on Environmental Migration, coming to you from Rutledge in 2015. She's a policy expert and an amazing human being, and we learned a lot doing this interview. And I'm already going on way too long. So without further ado, let's join Miriam and see what she has to say. Miriam, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, we, we really appreciate you making the time. And um, you're, you're calling it from Bonn, is that correct? No, actually, I'm in the French Riviera now. I'm in Cannes. Uh, there is a global conference on climate change and health. And we are talking about climate change and migration and displacement of people everywhere at the moment. Yeah, you you came to the right show. <laughs> uh, I am not at the French Riviera, I'm sorry to say. I'm, I'm actually in my podcast studio where the, the scenery is not so good. Um, but we really appreciate you joining us and bringing us your expertise. You know, we, we usually like to start because it's always a fascinating story about how, how people got to their work. I asked you the show to talk specifically about this issue of climate change refugees, but uh, uh, how, did, how did you come to IOM? How did you come to do what you do? So I've been working at IOM since 2011, and I used to work in uh, humanitarian emergencies. So I was basically doing uh, humanitarian program development and implementation. And then in 2013, I applied for a specific scheme, which is countries supporting young people to get a job at the UN. So I'm French. I'm also West African from Mali. But I applied for the French program and I got accepted at IOM. And basically the reason why France sponsored my job at the International Organization for Migration, IOM, it's because it was two years before the Paris Conference on Climate Change, which was in 2015, which mm -hmm. was a really big, big moment. Two years before that, they wanted to have someone who would be working specifically in the lead up to this conference on the question of climate change and migration of people. So that's how I ended up um, doing that job. And I've been doing it since 2013. You know, you're a specialist in, in climate change refugees, and, and so far this series, we're, we're still grappling with what exactly that means. So, you know, we've had other guests kind of talk about 
the lack of legal definition, the lack of legal protection around climate change refugees. And indeed, you know, 20 years ago, no one no one talked about this. From your vantage point, where are we in, in the story, if you will? I mean, we're, we're kind of getting to the point where the international community will recognize that this is a thing. You know, we see the news articles that say, OK, you know, there's going to be 100 million climate refugees. Where are we and, and, and where do we go next in terms of addressing this issue? So where we are at the moment, uh, we're definitely in a place of greater awareness. So when I started my job 2013, it was really hard to even discuss the topic. Now you open newspapers, you tune in CNN, and you will hear someone talking about the impacts of climate change on migration and displacement of people. But back a few years ago, really no one was interested. So what we do see now is a lot more political will to listen to the different stories that are happening around the world, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in South America, or in the Pacific Islands. So there is this willingness to look at the topic But in terms of where do we stand for legal protection of these people, I think we are more or less at the same level as uh, we used to be. It's a very contentious topic because creating a new um, categories of migrants or refugees displaced because of climate change would impose a lot of new obligations on states. And I don't think we are ready for that. So at the moment, it's mostly about bringing awareness to the topic and doing a lot of program development, but not necessarily about greater legal protection or creation of new legal categories. So what is it about? I mean, you know, when when organizations like, uh, you know, UNHCR and IOM were created after the Second World War, there was a very specific mandate. And if we're at a a geopolitical impasse where, you know, the countries of the world won't come together and enhance their obligations. And yet we're certain that the number of climate change refugees is going to rise. If the direction isn't, you know, a legal framework, what are we doing? What what are we trying to do? So I think the direction is not international legal frameworks, but I can see that there's more will to look at the regional levels. It's basically within uh, regions of countries, whether it's, I don't know, East Africa, West Africa, uh, Pacific countries. And I would add, first of all, that it's not because we're not looking really at an international legal protection framework for climate uh, displacement and migrants that other existing frameworks don't apply. So basically, you have to remember that human rights law apply to everyone, and you also have different sorts of other types of legal instruments that can be applied as well. Even if we don't have a legal treaty that talks about the protection of climate refugees slash migrants slash displaced persons, but uh, beyond that, you we do see at the at the regional level that some countries are discussing what kind of, uh, for instance, new visa regimes could be applied, or do we need to look at new labor migration schemes? So, but that would be focused on populations who are living in places impacted by climate change. So th- there are discussions, but it might not be as obvious as a big international legal treaty, but there, there are discussions on how we could protect these people displaced by climate change. Could you give us a window into those discussions? I mean, what are the uh, who's doing the most progressive work? And so I would say that these regional discussions are really happening in most of re- other regions. For instance, I was in the Caribbean not so long ago, and there were Eastern Caribbean states, and they were very interested in in also discussing what are the potential solutions to this. But I would still say that because it's such an existential issue for them, 
the Pacific Islands are probably the one who are advancing this discussion the most. They are really looking at potential labor migration visa or relocation of population, mostly internally within their country, but uh, they could also look at what to do beyond their, their national borders. So these discussions are happening. It's just that because it's also very technical, it might not be as on the radar than when you're discussing something as big as the Paris Climate Agreement, for instance. Oh, we'd like to go beneath the radar here on this show. <laughs> you're in the right place. And I think that's that's what we're really curious about. I mean, all of us see this issue through the lens of CNN or BBC or those sorts of things. And, you know, I know that there's a lot of conversations going on about, you know, how to actually address this problem. If we could dig down a little bit, I mean, when you say like a labor visa program, does that mean that, you know, someone who is in a low-lying country like, you know, Kiribati uh, would get a labor visa to move someplace else that's not as threat? It could absolutely mean this. It will depend on what the, the countries managed to agree upon. But because this is a kind of relatively new situation, we don't really have many examples of visa solutions that have worked in the past. But definitely what is uh, some of the discussions are centered around exactly this kind of visas, offering labor opportunities for people to move from one island to a bigger country and um, be able to work, make a livelihood there. Now there are, of course, still contentious issues around that because as far as I'm aware, most of these discussions centered on temporary labor migration. But it's also very clear that uh, there are some places, as you mentioned, Kiribati could be one of them, where temporary might not be enough because there might not be any islands anymore if nothing is done. So, yes, discussions, of course, are there. I find them fairly encouraging because I am part of the United Nations system and I know that these things are slow. So I'm quite encouraged by saying that a lot of countries are open to this discussion, but of course, at the moment, it's not enough. You're listening to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel. We hope you've been enjoying these thoughts from Mariam Chazal Noel of the International Organization for Migration. But we're going to take a quick break. While we're breaking, check us out on social media, where you can find out more about Mariam, IOM, and the global work to address migration. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Social Design Insights and on Twitter at SocialDesignIM. If this is your first time checking out Social Design Insights, you can find 100-plus other amazing episodes on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast dose. When we get back, we're going to be talking more about how to start the right conversations, and Miriam is going to give us some further insights into how she spearheads this important conversation over the long term. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more Social Design Insights after the break. Welcome back to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel. We've been speaking with Mariam Chazal Noel about the global conversation around migration. Coming up, we're going to keep going and talk about how we keep going while dealing with big multi-generational problems like migration. Let's rejoin the conversation. What are the the action items, for lack of a better term, that you know the countries of the world will actually have to take to make a meaningful 
solution to this problem? I mean, it seems like there's a lot of responsibility borne by, you know, first world countries, big polluters, and the consequences are now borne by developing countries and smaller, poorer countries. How do we how do we get past that problem? I mean, what's what's the latest in the conversation about that? To me, the latest in the conversation will be to maybe take a step back and not so much focus on political issues, but on things like enhancing climate adaptation, climate change adaptation. Because if you do have serious climate change mitigation and adaptation program in a country, especially if you focus this action in places where you can be fairly certain that people are already migrating or will migrate more in the in the future, then this kind of targeted action could already help people not to migrate if they don't want to. At the end of the day, when we speak to migrants, like real people who are actually moving from one place to another, most of them tell us that they don't want to move. Therefore, that's why they will go and search for something better. We do think that one of the major things you can do is to really step up this climate adaptation and mitigation programs. So that already would help quite a lot of people. But we do have to be very clear that it's unlikely to be enough. There will be people who will not be able to remain where they are. Some places are just too hot. They are getting so hot that the human body cannot survive. Or there are other places that are continuously flooded year after year or several times per year, and eventually it becomes impossible to live there. So what do you do with these people? That's the big question, and I think we are not anywhere near finding answers, but I do feel that there is a willingness to at least try. That's encouraging in and of itself. When we do find the answers, will you come back on the show? Um, <laughs> I will. Everybody is, but I think is... in terms of, of, of the answers, I mean, of course, so you, you do have the climate change uh, action when I talked about the climate change adaptation and mitigation programs. You also have to remember that there are really big funds dedicated to developing and implementing projects that will support climate change adaptation and mitigation. But as far as I'm aware, most of these um, big projects don't have a migration slash displacement component. So that needs to be to be looked at. Because when you're looking at multi-million dollars projects in a country, but migration and displacement of people is not considered, even though this project takes place in, in places where there's already a lot of population movement, then of course it's a gap. But eventually, I'm also quite hopeful that this kind of major multi-year, multi-million dollar project will start taking into account the movement of people. To me, that's, that's the climate change side. But you also have a migration policy side. And by this, I mean looking at really at visas and specific kind of temporary protection measures, anything which is related to, uh, to how you admit people into a territory. So that also needs to change to take into account the climate change impacts. What's an example of one of those multi-year, multi-million dollar projects? I mean, what, what would it look like? The kind of projects I'm thinking about are from the Green Climate Fund, um, which basically have really major, big projects in every part of the world. So in terms of, of projects, so most of the climate change projects are, for instance, about um, rural electrification of solar panels or uh, having this kind of uh, reforestation programs, making water available and so on. Normally, most of these are done so that populations are more resilient and they, they can basically continue living in their environment. Also, that the impacts of climate change are, don't have as much of an impact on landscape and people than they, they currently have. There's just 
a lot of different kinds of programs, whether it's uh, ensuring water supplies or making some infrastructures climate proof, meaning that they can withstand the impacts of climate change and so on. So this is done mostly by climate change specialists, which I'm not I'm not a climate change specialist. I work on, on migration mostly. So and that's where I feel that there was a gap, that there was really a disconnect between people working on climate change issues and people working on migration and displacement issues. And this gap still exists, but now there's more connection between the, the scientists, let's say, and the, the engineers and the people who are implementing climate change projects and the ones who are thinking about, but what are the impacts on the movements of people? So um, I think this is slowly changing. I can imagine in the future that you would have this kind of like maybe big solar panels program focused maybe in areas where we know that there, there is a lot of migration or, they, or there can be more migration in the future. So then, you know, you can do, let's say, two things at once do something in terms of climate change adaptation and mitigation and also reduce forced migration of people who might not want to move out. How do you do that? I mean, it sounds like really tricky waters to navigate in the sense that institutionally the world is still getting its mind around climate change and what to do about it. And then all of a sudden it's like, hey, we got to deal with this migration thing as well. So you're trying to bring if I understand it, a migration voice to those adaptation conversations. How do you do that? At my level, first of all, we start by trying to be present in the climate change negotiations. So every year you probably hear on television that there is a, a climate conference with negotiations among countries. At the moment, they are discussing the implementation of the, of the Paris Agreement and so on. So there's a lot of these technical discussions of course, most of the specialists in climate change don't think about uh, migration issues. And that's where we come in and we just try to remind them that whatever they do probably has an impact already or will have an impact on the movement of people. So it's really about having this kind of political conversations with negotiators so that they have in mind that there is a movement, a population movement dimension to keep in mind. And then the next steps after that is to... Uh, support the countries, especially the ones who are interested, to include migration and displacement issues in their national climate change plans. Some countries, if I'm not mistaken, for instance, a country like St. Lucia in the Caribbean, as part of a national climate change adaptation strategy, they do have a paragraph that says that they need to take into account the impacts on, on migration. So essentially, what most countries are getting at is that if they are doing their jobs properly in terms of climate change adaptation and mitigation, then there will not be that much population displacement or forced migration. But sometimes it will not be enough. So, Miriam, uh, one of the questions that's been sort of gnawing on me is that, you know, there, there are precedents for how to deal with migration. And, you know, the world learned some hard lessons in the 20th century about, you know, how to deal with an influx of displaced peoples. You know, it seems like adapting, no pun intended, adapting to our contemporary migration questions and issues shouldn't be that difficult. I mean, whether somebody is driven from their home for political reasons or war or because of rising seas or drought, we have precedents for, for how to deal with the mass movement of people. Is there some sort of disconnect there or am I projecting something onto the situation? Uh, I don't think you're necessarily projecting, but I think a lot of policymakers might not have a long-term memory. 
and we also have, of course, the pressure of, uh, of national political pressure. We all aware right now that it's not easy to talk about migration. It doesn't matter whether people migrate because of uh, climate change or economic questions. It's very hard for most countries to speak about migrants at the moment, especially to speak about migrants in a way which is not completely negative. And in a way, I, of course, I, I can understand that. But I think it's also important to remember that, as you say, we have, I mean, migration has always been there. We are used to dealing with mass movements of people. At the moment, we don't really have mass movements of people linked to climate change across borders. So that's a, a, at least a good news. We do have a lot of displacement linked to floods or storms and so on, but it tends to take place within a country and not across border. I was talking to some policymakers from different countries a few days ago, and they were telling me they were concerned by the fact that because these movements takes place inside the country, then it's not very obvious. It's not very obvious to the international community, and therefore it kind of delays necessary action. On the other hand, when you do have international migration movements that could potentially be connected, at least in part, to climate change, like in the in the discussions around the, the migrants' caravan in Central America, for instance, where some people do link this kind of migration to um, environmental and climate change issues. And of course, there's a lot more attention there. But at the moment, we have to be clear that it seems that most of the, of the migration movements takes place within countries and not across borders, but that doesn't mean it won't happen in the future. So there, there is no international legal agreement who is an international climate migrant or displaced person. But it's also because mostly at this stage, these population movements is inter are internal. So. But as you said, I mean, it just it sets a precedent. Nature doesn't know where those national boundaries are. For the islands or that's in the Caribbean or the Pacific, it's it's literally a physical limitation. <laughs> There's only so long you can stay on an island which is being destroyed by sea level rise. But of course, I mean, in many other countries where the borders will not necessarily be respected by <laughs> climate change. You know, I think one of the frustrating things uh, about you know, issues of migration and, and especially climate-induced migration is the scope of, of the problem, which can become intimidating. And I think that, you know, a lot of people when engaging it, it seems uh, so great that it's easier to, to turn away and, you know, go back on Twitter or watch the Game of Thrones premiere. When I was in the field, I, I would always advise people to kind of look to the long term and and keep laughing, you know, and you got to laugh to kind of keep your sense of humor about you and keep working on the problem. What keeps you going? I mean, you're, you're dealing with something that is multi-generational in scope. What keeps you going? Absolutely. I mean, it seems like such a daunting prospect, but frankly, sometimes I'm not blaming the policymakers for thinking that this might be a topic better left alone. Uh, at the same time, I think we're getting to a point where we don't have a choice. And I'm actually positively surprised by the extent of the, the willingness that I'm seeing amongst nation states to speak about the issue and try to do something about it. Of course, at the moment, everything I'm talking about here, it's mostly at the discussion level. And the big, big issue is what do you do beyond discussing in negotiations at the UN? You know, what do you do in practice to support people who are in this situation, but also to support the states who have to handle these difficult situations. 
the political discussion, I think, is advancing well. I also feel that in terms of projects and programs and even national policy development, there is some uh, some progress. Of course, it's not as fast as a lot of people would like to uh, to see, but it's it's still getting somewhere. But of course, everything seems slow. But I think we have to remember that this kind of, of work takes a long time. I mean, 20 years ago, I remember when we were discussing at the at the UN the the Millennium Development Goals, it also felt like it was a very slow prospect. And then, 20, you know, 20 years after, you do see progress, for instance, health, education, life expectancy, and so on. So things do progress, generally speaking, but it's hard to see it on a day-to-day basis. That is a wonderful reminder. Thank you, Miriam. And I think that it behooves us all to check in once in a while and realize that um, these are these are big problems and they're going to take time to solve and to take joy and encouragement in, in the little steps along the way. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we know you've been traveling and, and appreciate you calling in and, and lending us your expertise on this issue. Thank you. It was really a pleasure. You've been listening to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel. I'd like to thank my guest of the week, Mariam Chazel-Noel of IOM, for giving us her crucial insights into this issue of migration. I think we forget too often how much our current cities were designed by migration, as we tend to see them through the lens of our own lifetimes. The history of our cities is tied up in our monuments and tour guides, but it isn't lived. But we're going to live through that now, if you believe the news. So I think design really has to think about migration, not as a temporary emergency displacement for others, but just the ways in which cities are made. To learn more about Miriam and her work, please visit our website at currystonefoundation.org. If you have any feedback on the show, ideas for guests, or just want to chat, you can write to me at eric at socialdesigninsights.com. Join us next week. We're going to be headed to Nuremberg, Germany, to speak with our old friend T.K. Kriesig about the refugee academy that he founded there in Berlin, how that's going, and how recent events in Berlin can set an example for all cities. Tune in next Thursday. Social Design Insights is produced by Baruch Zeigner, and at the break, we're listening to the song Nayan by Fatumata Diawara off of her album Fenfo. Social Design Insights is an initiative of the Curry Stone Foundation. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Social Design Insights and on Twitter at Social Design IM for all the latest news on social impact design. <laughs>